This episode of Channel Mind News is for information only. Please do your own research before making any investment decision or alternatively seek advice from a registered financial advisor. These, I think I got the um, I got the better chair. This one's like, like you're padded. Yeah, just I'll really sink into it. Yeah, very good. Happy. Uh, is it still? I think if it's January, it's Happy New Year, Bigsy. Happy New Year to you. Nice to see you. Good. Did As you have a good Christmas? I did, mate. Oh, I did. I was a bit of bloody uh, daycare gastro through the Christmas time, which so it wasn't as good as planned. But so sent and delivered then. Yeah, good old uh, yeah. The daycare petri dish strikes again. So how about yourself, mate? I'm very quiet. You and your lovely missus. Yes, quiet, um, but, uh, you know, sort of fairly busy. Um, Mm. Bit of work, bit of play, bit of fun, bit of downtime, but some setting up for 2023. That's what's... uh, The year of the bigs. You could say bigger than the last year. Let's hope it's uh, a bit better than 2022. However, I will say, even though 2022 was um, a little bit traumatic for um, some of us in this space... um, Commodity prices are still strong. Um, they haven't really changed, right? So, you know, I think this year is going to be um, going to be very good. Yeah. What's now? Today, I wanted to grab you for. We're not doing any company specific. I want a, a bit of landscape commentary about look lithium in lithium critical minerals, international issues such as China, where everything's sitting. A bit of a bit of a scope, bit of an outlook for 2023. And as I said, this is not advice or predictions for anyone, but it's, a, I guess, highlighting the potential risks in the mining industry and investment. I reckon yourself being an MD of a lithium junior, previously an MD of a base metals explorer that was heading towards a mineral resource estimate. So you, you know exactly what it's like at this level where the race for lithium production Give us a bit of insight. I think that uh, if you look at the valuations of lithium companies, a lot of people say they're overvalued and they're undervalued. And it's very difficult because you know let's let's remember that there's there's not that many data points of of lithium producers over multiple um, years or decades. We can make those comparison points to any other commodity, pretty much. Um, you know, gold, copper. We understand with lithium, not so much. So I think that we're seeing this 100 um, million to 150 mil market cap per 10 million tons of resource. That's typically about right. However, when you see companies that are close to production, Core Lithium, a good example, you see their valuation is significantly um, above that. Why is that? I guess it. I guess it talks to the race for um, race to production because we are seeing a shortage of lithium. If we are to believe the targets and 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 such, which are being set out globally within policy driven change. So, if we look at it like that, you know, the key here is to get to production that's what it's about for a lot of these companies that have a resource so there's two ends of the of the scale for me you're a junior um like we are at lightning minerals and there's a lot of upside there okay or you're close to production with a, a proven resource and a definitive feasibility study for a lot of those companies that sit in the middle we can see at the moment their share price is you know fairly constant um you know that's what people want so they even want the the multiples you know the discovery up front same for all commodities, I would guess, or they want to see um, the you know the the clear path to production probably over the next two years. Um, and I think if you look at the ASX space, particularly, 
um, and look at the valuations of companies that holds true. Well, because in the multiple risks at the moment, you've got the anticipated lowering of the lithium price. Everyone says it's not sustainable to be running at these margins. The Pilbara Minerals generating $850 million to their balance sheet in one quarter is just unbelievable. But then you add to that the capital expenditure blowouts that we're seeing as well. We saw Liontown the other day, their CapEx, even though there was up upgrades in the capacity, but their you know, CapEx is going past what they initially thought they were funded, fully funded for. I guess where do you see those risks? Which is they both that'd be both top of the top of the list for lithium risks at the moment. I think in any any business and um, you know any commodity, any um, project development, um, there's always risk as far as uh, you know inflationary pressure goes. Um, you know supply side uh, pressure, skill shortages, of course, right. However, um, I still think that uh, you know people won't look at you know, an increase of capex in, in a company which is fairly close to production in the lithium space has been a significant issue because what people want, they want to be in production so they can take advantage of that higher price. Now, if, is lithium um, price going to drop? If all these projects come online, of course, it's simple supply and demand um, economics and, and moving towards an equilibrium point. But, you know, that's a long way away. We know that to, to find a deposit, um, you know, develop that deposit and get into production at a minimum is five years. You know, five to sort of 10 years is typical. You know, we see some good things in Canada right now, Patriot Battery Metals, what they're doing. I mean, fantastic resource, um, you know, potentially very large scale. Um, you know, it's going to be a very, very big uh, deposit. How quickly can they get into production? I don't know. Um, and that's what we'll see. So that's a good benchmark, I think, at the moment for a, a company that's got a good deposit. They're doing good work. They'll come out with a resource. How quickly can they move that forward? I think it's all about speed to market right now. And Australian hard rock deposits have to be leading the race for your favourable investments. Like As you said, the Patriot Battery Metals sensational hits like multiple hundred metres over 2%, like even higher, like 6% sections, essentially pure spodumene sections. Though you've got Alchem just been approved for their James Bay after five years. So you've got the whole permitting issue. I know, look, Canada is a, you know, it's not a West African jurisdiction, but in terms of permitting, it is as difficult. You've got Leo Lithium still, they're going, they're significantly discounted with the West African side, but the Australian hard rock producers, they're, seem to be the top of the list for who are going to get to production the easiest. Yeah, I think that, you know, I've always said it, if you gave me an opportunity to have a project, I'd have it in Australia, um, you know, Western Australia, preferably, or Canada, and mm -hmm. Canada being uh, Quebec or Ontario. So I think those are low-risk jurisdictions. Of course, there's always the permit inside of things and, you know, the skill shortage and, you know, the the cost of CapEx and all those, uh, all those inputs. But um, I think... You know, in an established Western jurisdiction, it's easier to manage those things than perhaps it might be over in West Africa. Uh, so, and that's certainly the, the the sentiment and opinion of investors. However, um, you mentioned James Bay there, and obviously the long protracted um, timelines for approval. If that is the case with all these projects or a lot of these projects, and we're not going to see a significant increase in the supply side of lithium, then um, you know prices remain strong. There's a lot that has to change for that to reach that equilibrium because everything is is in such demand at the moment. Like look at potential DSO mining of DSO. Uh, a lot of like I think Leo Lithium are planning it, Lion Town are planning it, Red Dirt are planning it. Uh, Core have just started shipping DSO. Look, just 
mine crush screen send send it off like that is that is absolute high demand that offtake partners are just taking that DSO because they need the lithium that bad at the moment. So there it is that's how far it's in that favour with the prices. So there's a lot that has to, you know, the, these projects that are coming online. I think it's would you anticipate a quick shift to that equilibrium or there's a it's going to be a very gradual process? I don't think it's as quick as uh, policy-driven demand believes it will be, is my opinion, because there are a lot of hurdles um, to develop projects and develop assets. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that that doesn't really change. It doesn't matter how much money you throw at it. There's still a time component, um, you know, to doing your drilling, to doing your feasibility studies, to building your project. So the time, the time component can't really change that much. Okay, mm -hmm. you can throw a bit more money at it, but it doesn't, you know, change your um, timeline from five to seven years to one to three years. Mm. Um, maybe there's examples of that and maybe there's exceptional cases, but certainly projects of significant scale, um, you know, I see that we're still locked into the timelines which we're familiar with um, for mm. development of mining projects. So, you know, I think that uh, moving forward, lithium remains strong. Um, you know, I think it's still shiny for for the market you know there's still a lot of understanding that people are getting um you know and gaining about uh, the commodity about the market um factors and as we have projects come online people will become more familiar with it and it won't just be a shiny thing anymore um which is good because then it becomes something which is real it produces um you know uh, clear cash flow um and value for shareholders um and obviously it supports that policy driven change uh, which we're seeing around the world I mean, if you look at China, they're looking at maybe, um, you know, increasing um, their production. They're looking at these lipidolite projects and, you know, maybe they do that, maybe they don't. But I think this year with China, if you look back at last year, obviously it was 2% uh, growth, I think, GDP growth. Um, you know, that's that's poor, very poor for them. Uh, you know, they're targeting 8% GDP growth this year. So, you know, that gets tr China back on track. And, you know, um, when China sneezes, everyone catches a bit of a cold, right? It used to be America. I think it's China. Um, and the opposite is happening. Um, so I see that the demand is strong, um, the, the thematic is strong, um, and everybody wants critical minerals right now. That's not changing. No, no, it isn't. And uh, even Elon was on Twitter the other day saying, you had Gary Nagel last year saying that there's going to be predicting a 50 million tonne copper shortfall by 2030. He's, he mines a lot of copper, so very skewed in his bias. You got Elon that replied this morning. I saw. I saw that uh, GG retweeted it actually, saying uh, that copper production won't need to increase much to supply the battery metals industry. Very contrasting views. He's obviously got some thesis behind this. I don't know if I should criticise Mr. Musk publicly. Um, <laughs> Someone got in trouble. Yeah, many people are getting in trouble for that. He might remove stuff. my Twitter account. But, uh, <laughs> no, look, everybody, give everybody, blue, give Bigsy a blue tick for cross. Thank so. you. Yeah, that's. I'm not paying eight bucks a month for it. Um, so, uh, so look, I think that uh, you know everyone has their opinion, right? And of mm -hmm. course, as you say, there's there's people that have vested interests in putting some of these opinions out, which we've seen with certain individuals and, and groups and, and companies, um, you know, talking about uh, lithium prices and and such. So, you know, you've got to look at the fundamentals. Where is the copper coming from? We're seeing a reduction in grade. Um, you know, we've been talking about this for years, particularly when you look at the large scale copper producers out of South America. 
um, you know, assume a reduction in grade, which means an increase in, in tons to produce the same amount of metal. There's cost implications for that, all these sort of things. So, you know, when you look at it at that, that level, okay, that works for a bit, but you need new projects coming online. And that's why I think policy-driven change is great. And, you know, I really like what governments are doing around the world and, and committing to this, but there needs to be a commitment to um, to supporting uh, mining companies and, uh, you know, exploration companies to actually get that work done quicker because then ultimately it, it supports them. So, you know, we need to see, um, you know, streamlining of, of permitting and, um, and such and approvals to help us um, meet, those, uh, meet those goals. And you can see where Elon's motivation is, if he can uh, put out the idea that the, these battery metals are in absolute abundance and because his lithium comment was like, there's lithium everywhere in the ground, we're going to be fine. So his motivation would be, well, hopefully, the prices will just go down because I said there's heaps of it, so everyone will stop stressing, which will make his batteries cheaper to produce. That's right, and you know, in some in in some sense, that comment is correct. Um, mm. There's uh, lots of things all over the place, all over the Earth's um, surface, right? Now, whether they are um, economic for us to uh, you know resource up and mine, and you know make money for our shareholders, that's mm. another matter. I mean, we're not living in a um, you know we're not limited living in a, um, a a communist country where you know you would just mm. mine the mine the mineral just so you can employ people. The cost doesn't really matter, right? It's a bit it's a bit different um, here. We are you know public companies um, and private companies who have shareholders who want to see a return. Mm. So it has to be economic, and um, you know it's not as simple as just uh, digging a hole anywhere. As we know, this industry is. Mm. You know, it's uh, it's extremely um, can be extremely complicated. There's a lot of variables, and you know, I think governments need to step in and start understanding what we as as mining professionals and mining companies need to do to get these projects into production. That's now, important. Now, you mentioned China before. What role or how critical do you, what how will China influence the say the lithium, copper, nickel? going forward how much of a player are they going to be in as you said their anticipated eight percent gdp growth getting back to those growth levels how critical a role will they play in this whole industry going forward china always wants to be the biggest player and you know by virtue of the fact that there are um you know the biggest population in the world they've got that uh, that uh, force behind them they've got that critical mass so um, I think that, but when you look at certain policies that have come out, you know, if we look at Canada, for example, we look at, uh, you know, the policies that have been brought in there where Chinese, um, you know, companies uh, cannot own um, assets over there. That's also now extended to the property market where foreign nationals can't own property in Canada. I mean, those sort of things, um, you know, will, will reduce their influence um, as far as direct offtake and direct mining. Are they still going to be manufacturers? Yes, potentially. Um, I've always said that we're seeing this second manufacturing boom uh, in America as they decouple from China, and that is happening. We're seeing that. That's why we see that policy in Canada. So, you know, the, but I don't see any of these things as mutually exclusive. I mean, who can ever produce the product um, in the most cost-effective ethical manner, um, then that's who wins. And China has a massive role in that, of course. I mean, 8% um, growth in their GDP this year is huge. I mean, that's a return to some of the numbers we were seeing a few years back. And, you know, China certainly needs a kickstart um, with regards to um, their economy. Um, COVID has obviously hit them hard. I think Chinese New Year yesterday. Happy Chinese New Year to everybody, of course. Um, you know, now we're seeing a new year for these guys, and, and I certainly see that that growth and that intention um, behind 
behind uh, what the party over there wants to achieve will positively affect all of us as well. Now, let's get back to Australia. Small, mid-cap explorers and potential project developers like like yourself, what are some of the biggest hurdles, like are there, what hurdles are in Australia to getting exploration lithium projects to get into production? And are those hurdles any bigger, smaller than what you see globally? I think it all comes down to, um, you know, policy and, and how the government supports that. And of mm -hmm. course, we have to do things the right way. We can't just be um, out there and, uh, and and not doing the correct thing with regards to ESG. Um, again, it's not mutually exclusive. I think the government needs to streamline some of those processes. I think it needs to understand um, what is required. I also think um, that they should start inviting manufacturers and, and downstream, um, you know, uh, folks into that conversation into Western Australia, you know, what could you what could you build here? What could you manufacture? What could you partially manufacture? We've obviously got the lithium refinery down at Quinana now. Um, why can't we take that next step? So I think that conversation needs to be expanded to different people. And I think by virtue of that happening, that then drives development because you might have, you know, manufacturers coming over here and going, okay, we like this, we'll do an offtake with this company. Um, they've got a manufacturing opportunity here in Australia. They will then drive the development of that project. So I think it's multi-leveled. Um, is it different anywhere else in the world? No, I think there's always hurdles. Um, some a bit more, um, you know, uh, certain things are, are more prevalent in certain um, countries than others. But look, I just think ultimately, um, you know, we can talk about the skill shortage. We can talk about inflation we can talk about increased cost of capex all these things they're not going away in the short term um so then there's another discussion how do we increase you know the 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 skill set within our industry what do we do and as you would know i'm involved in the school of mines um you know i'm a graduate of there i'm vice president of the alumni this is something we are always looking at how can we bring people into this industry it's a great industry it's fantastic i think some of the, the viewpoints externally um, are maybe a little bit negative. Some justified, some not so. I think we need people in the business. We need government supporting development strategies because it feeds into their policy-driven change idea. And they need to understand that at the moment there's probably a disconnect there. So I think governments need to start getting involved in the conversation in a more constructive way. And the way I look at inflation, now this might be very simplistic, but you look at just, just wages and cost of things in in the mining industry, they, they, you would you rarely see when you get promoted to a new wage that that wage goes backwards. The, that's usually your new wage for could be and it could be for ten years. That's what it was before this inflation inflationary environment, and that could be the same as cost. There, there's a good chance that these high costs and high capex and high wages and like that is that could be the new baseline for what what all projects will have to endure in the next five or ten years. And that's it. And it, it, it never goes backwards. It always goes up. I mean, look at the price of new cars at the moment. I mean, you know, everybody's blaming COVID. Manufacturers are blaming that. I don't really see how that's uh, that's uh, that's relevant to, you know, a 15, 20% increase in some new car models. I mean, it's crazy. That's not going backwards. People's wages have to come up to meet that. Um, and, you know, our costs are, are not going backwards either. But, you know, when we look at um, when we look at the, uh, you know, the opportunity that exists in the lithium space, particularly, and, and the price of, of the commodity is astounding, right? I mean, it's 10 times what it was at its low, um, you know, which is only a few years back. Mm. 
you know, there's a lot of money to be made here. Um, there's a lot of opportunity. So we can keep talking about those things. Um, you know, governments needs to needs to step in and, and try and keep those things under control. But I even see with a boom in manufacturing and a boom in, um, you know, uh, mine development, that only drives inflation again, right? So there's always going to be people on the right side of it and the wrong side of it. Um, you know, that is, you know, we always see a two-stage economy. Um, that's how it is, right? But um, ultimately what we need to do is get our projects into production um, in a sustainable, cost-effective, um, safe way, which supports you know, the bigger policy-driven um, change that governments want. Where, how do you think Australia is going to go with adoption of electrification, not just in the mining sector but in everyday life with adoption of electric cars? Do you think it's going to be a long transition? Because uh, we're not as forced as, say, the, you know, I think it was at England that put in the laws by 2030. They had to have X amount percentage of electric vehicles. They weren't making any more. Are Australia going to adopt a bit slower, do you think, or up in the air, crystal ball, flip a coin? I think it's probably going to be a bit slower. I mean, uh, you know, by virtue of the size of our country um, and the massive infrastructure required, I think it will be slower. However, when I was in Canada um, and I was driving out from Thunder Bay out to Dryden, which is about a four-hour drive, halfway, and it's, you know, it's similar as if you're driving out towards Kalgoorlie, okay? Mm -hmm. So it's like remote, um, small towns and all that sort of thing. Um, you know, we, we come across Tesla charging stations and other charging stations halfway. I mean, we don't see that at the moment, really, um, in Western Australia. I know there's some on the way down to um, Margaret River. But, you know, if you look at uh, the UK over Christmas, everybody was trying to get their car charged. Everyone travels a lot in the UK um, by car at Christmas and people were waiting 12 hours because the charging stations were broken. You know, um, what do you do? I mean, that's difficult. So, you know, there needs to be, governments need to step up and support that. Now, does government um, fund that? Probably not, it needs to be private, but um, the government needs to drive that change and make it happen quickly. Um, I mean, would I have an electric car? I'd love an electric car. Mm. I'd have it as my second car. It's not something I'd want to rely on if I have to drive down to Margaret River, um, you know, but I only have one car, right? So. Um, as a second vehicle, yes. But even if we look at it from that perspective, that's still a massive adoption, right? And there's still a massive gap there to fill. Um, we're certainly seeing more um, electric vehicles on the road. And it was only ever really Teslas that we saw um, here in Australia. But two brands that I, I think I want to give a shout out to are Polestar, which is uh, Volvo's electric vehicle. Fantastic, well-priced, very good quality. And BYD, which is, of course, the Chinese manufacturer. And when I used to spend time up in China, all the vehicles were BYD, like the DD, which is like their Uber, right? Um, so, you know, that's a, an established manufacturer. Um, they're offering vehicles for less than $60,000, um, you know, eight-year warranty, I think, on the car, six years on the battery. These are these. This is a good. This is a good price point now because we always looked at electric vehicles as a luxury item. You know, when the first Tesla came out, it was in two hundred thousand dollars. Obviously, with the Model Three, um, they've stepped down to like sixty to seventy-five, something like that. But there's another step again below that, um, where I think it, it becomes more palatable and uh, more accessible for just your average punter. Um, so. It will, it will be, you know, the change will be driven by basic economics and people like BYD will see that opportunity and step into the market um, and um, that's what has to happen for people to... Well, you're paying a premium for Tesla. You're paying the Tesla tax on it. They've, Would you have a Tesla? Brand. Oh, that's the thing. I'd automatically think if I'm going to get an electric car, I'll get a Tesla because that's all I know. The brand is imprinted in me and that's how, that's how supply and demand works. That's why their share price was trading at such a premium to their earnings because 
they're well branded. It's a great marketing exercise, Tesla. Yeah. But then that also feeds into the fact that if it's it's not purely marketing because they do produce a great product, mm. but you know because lack of I guess other um, you know providers in the industry, you were forced to spend a lot more money than perhaps you would want to. So that then by virtue makes it a luxury item. So you see it that way, it's luxury. BYD, something like that, you probably don't see it that way. It's actually something which is more, you know, price point wise is, is more aimed at the average punter. So um, I agree. I mean, certainly um, until we see more providers in the space, that adoption is going to be um, less because not everyone can afford um, $70,000 for an electric car. And then when, when these are all getting pumped out everywhere across the world, built, everything is electric vehicle getting built, no diesel, diesel and petrol combustion won't won't be a thing anymore what do you say about the pricing of lithium like as as you said it's all off off takes very ex- exchange of depends what the two parties want to pay what their arrangement is will there be some sort of spot arrangement or different streams of pricing that based on spodumene concentrate grade like do you think that's all going to change or is it still going to remain very secretive in a way the way it is now well i think it's like any any product i mean if you look at copper you know we have a price for copper but you know if you produce a concentrate of um 21 percent um versus a concentrate of 16 percent, mm. there's a big difference in that price and payability um you know lithium is no different and obviously the the companies that produce the the best quality product um will always demand a higher price mm. uh you know if we get to the point where everyone's driving an electric car then who needs lithium, right? I mean, that, it really drops off. But you know, that's not realistic. That's that can't that can't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if we look at the third world, the third world is changing. I mean, you know, everybody um, in the third world is aspirational, right? Like, you know, it's different to how it was fifty years ago. Um, and you know, we're seeing a lot of growth in in third world company, countries more so than we see in the West. So then you've got that to, to follow up um, our growth as well, right? So, look, I think there's always going to be a demand for lithium. Um, it does come down to, um, you know, governments. And if all of a sudden they scrap their targets and their mandates um, for 2030 and 2040, that's a different story. But I can't see that happening. So, um, you know, does the lithium price remain here? Who knows? It comes down to supply. But certainly in the short term, um, short to medium term, and by medium term, I probably mean five, six, seven years, um, I think it's very strong. And it's it, well, it's not going down at all at the moment. Even Pilbara, Pilbara's price went up from last quarter, so it's still it's still on the rise from what they're selling it at. It's phenomenal. So, and they talk about, but they went to get to that stage of look. It's everyone says, oh, Pilbara's just printing cash. It it didn't happen by accident. They, they had a lot of years of heartache where the lithium price wasn't the way it is. It was only it was a quarter of what it is one year ago. So the years ago when they were developing, they were you know losing money, tr- struggling to keep the doors open, but all paying dividends now. Well, March twenty twenty, um, they were fifteen cents. Mm. Okay, fifteen cents, and uh, you know that was the end of the world. Um, you know, it was the end of the world for for lithium. You know, we had that up in uh, 16, 17, 18, but you know, it's come back a lot stronger. Um, and Pilbara is a great case in point of how you build a company, how you develop a resource, how you get it in production, how you ride out those years of, you know, famine um, when everything's against you and how you still come out on top. And, you know, it's a very, very well-performing um, business and I'm very impressed with what those guys are doing. That's a good little sum up of uh, from the ground floor of uh, Lithium Critical Minerals, bit of China. Uh, thanks very much as always, Bigsy. Thank you, mate. Yeah, I know your time it. is very valuable and I 
really appreciate you allocating a bit to me today, as well, always. I appreciate it as well. And um, we'll speak again soon. We will. Cheers, mate. Thank you, mate. Cheers.